Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one fintech podcast and radio show globally with over 20% of the total fintech podcast audience and 180 countries. Thanks for joining us again this week. Um, this week, we joined with our friends over at The Futurist Podcast, one of Provoke's newest podcasts, to interview someone we've had on the show a few times, Brad Templeton. Now, apart from working on the Google self-driving car project, Brad is a long-term technologist with incredible experience in the foundational days of the internet, dot-com businesses, and so forth. And he had a very interesting perspective to share in respect to how technology is changing the world and how that impacts things like the uh, the political movement and social movement today, this tug between, you know, um, looking back historically at, uh, you know, core values and moving forward in terms of technology pro- progress and how that's going to impact society more broadly. Let's check out the interview with Brad Templeton on The Futurist this week. Brad Templeton, welcome to The Futurists. Good to be here. I mean, usually we have you wrong when you have a long resume, it just means you're old. So I, I guess so. Well, that includes all three of us, I guess. Um, but uh, it's it great to perspective on the future. Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. That's you right. know, I'm, I, I have a good friend who, who's a, 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 a futurist and he always says, um, as JP Rangaswamy out of the UK, JP, he was the chief scientist at Salesforce right. for a while. Um, I guess you guys know him. Yeah, I know him um, in the British Telecom as well. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so JP, uh, he has this great uh, saying that to be a, a good futurist, you have to be a good pastist because mm-hmm. you have to understand the past. You have to understand human behavior, um, you know, and, and so forth. So, Brad, you've made a lot of bets, um, you know, in the past about the future, you've got a, a pretty good track record in, in a range of areas. But um, let me start by this, you know, as a futurist, um, what is something that you predicted in the past that you're most proud of? Well, I actually think my prediction record on self-driving cars uh, has been fairly good, even though a lot of people are going back and forth about, is it going to happen soon? Is it going to happen in decades? I actually uh, discovered this interview with me from about eight or nine years ago where I laid out a timeline and we're actually on that timeline. And that's odd because I usually never want to do timelines and dates. Any futurist who does is an idiot because it's uh, certainly going to come back to burn you very rarely. uh, Are you ever that correct? Uh, Or as I like to say, all the predictions I've made that I remember have come true, uh, which is true of so many other people. (laughs) Uh, but uh, I've been pretty good about that. Um, I've been horribly wrong about a few things, like the value of Bitcoin and uh, and stuff like that. Um, and um, I, you know, I, I think that uh, I also was pretty good at predicting sort of the a little bit about the course of the internet. I mean, although I certainly wasn't the only one, and a lot of people like to think the internet just in the early '90s just sort of 
sprung upon the world fully formed from the head of Zeus. And it didn't. It had been going on for quite some time, since the late 60s, and I got involved in the late 70s. And back then, uh, the equivalent of social media was the mailing list. And the very, not the very first mailing list, but one of the first and really interesting mailing lists was called Human Nets. It was about what computer networks meant for humans. Uh, and back in those days on that, uh, that particular message board, we had um, a term we called WorldNet, and it was our dream of what in the future would be this big network that everyone was connected to, and you would bank on it and shop on it and communicate with your friends on it and do all the things that we do. And, and so we all had that rough picture in our minds. Now, we obviously didn't predict Facebook, and we didn't predict uh, all these other companies, or we'd all be billionaires, right? We'd have invested in them or built them. Uh, so only a few of the people became billionaires. But nonetheless, it wasn't uh, something that was a big surprise. And uh, I certainly laid that out and uh, and got to talk about it in the early days of it. And many of the things I predicted came true. Obviously, a lot of things I didn't even imagine happened too. Wow. You know, it occurred to me, uh, reading up on you a little bit, on your background on your website, um, that you did a lot of work on Usenet, and now Usenet seems like archaeology. You know, like mm -hmm. I'm imagining half the people who are using smartphones today have no idea or have never heard of Usenet. Tell us a little bit about those days. Tell us a bit about what you were doing in Usenet. What was hard and what was, what was it good for? Yeah, it's um, certainly true if you're below a certain age, you would never have encountered it. Uh, it's interesting, though, because I look at that history and try and map it into the future and trying to understand uh, what, you know, today we call social media, but back then we just called online discussion groups and bulletin boards and mailing lists and so on. Uh, so social uh, interaction on computers began, in fact, with mailing lists when the uh, the very first way that people could have a social environment there was with the mailing list. Uh, in about 1978, 1979, both bulletin board systems, BBSs, right. a term that people probably still do remember, and uh, it, it Usenet were born. And a little bit, not much longer after that, commercial online uh, services like CompuServe um, and AOL and so AOL came later, they were born. Um, but for the internet, Usenet was its community. It was its place where you could, went to discuss things, meet other people. And unlike today, there was only one. Um, and uh, unlike today, nobody owned it. It was this uh, cooperative, this collective. And basically, because communications were more expensive in those days, Everybody who had a, it was always done on, um, you know, what we, what we might have called a mainframe, but or mini computers, larger computers that were shared rather than on personal computers. Uh, I mean, the cloud, I guess that would be our magic term for it today. But anyway, each was independent in a different place and you connected to your local computer and you put in messages and your computer shared its messages with all the people it knew. And then they shared with everyone they knew. And they told two friends and they told two friends. And so messages flooded around the world. And you could read them locally on your computer with the speed that involved. So that was pretty good. And from uh, the late 70s until really um, Yahoo and a few other things arose in the early to mid 90s, that was the place of community for the online world. And so it was very interesting. It was a more, um, you know, not to be too elitist, but a more erudite uh, audience. Um, there were there were trolls, of course, uh, spamming originated there. So all these things that we know of that are bad originated there. But to be getting on it in the beginning, you, you generally had to be at a lab or university. Uh, mm -hmm. And then later you could right, be yeah. in a public online service. And that just altered the character of it a bit. And so uh, this is our error, of course, that we didn't, 
um, predict some of the things that are happening today when, well, let's put it bluntly, dark forces mm-hmm. are on it, deliberately trying to do things. One of my great regrets, and I shouldn't say my regret because I was just one of many contributors and building these systems, but that we built them, uh, maybe we should now say a bit naively about that. Mm-hmm. We, um, you know, we, we generally felt, and, and I, I still mostly feel, that giving people more access to more information, more communication, the ability of anyone to publish, anyone to, you know, get access to all information, that this is generally a good thing. Mm-hmm. But what we didn't anticipate was, of course, that if evil people decided to deliberately weaponize it, use it for propaganda, use it to bend people's wills uh, or bend the sphere of information that people have, that this could have, well, obviously rather horrible consequences. And one of the great problems I ponder today is how to find a solution for that, a solution that still preserves what we value. Uh, Mm -hmm. There are many solutions being proposed to say, well, you know, let's just censor the network. Let's just ask Facebook to, you know, block everything. Let's get presidents of countries kicked off of Twitter, uh, a rather common topic of discussion these days. And uh, those are, I'm actually, I even would side a little bit with Elon on that in the sense that he he has said that, you know, banning uh, the president from Twitter uh, was going too far. And a lot of people disagree with him on that. Uh, that he, what he would do if he owned Twitter is he would, you know, ban specific tweets, but he wouldn't uh, take a person off. Um, so uh, I'm not entirely against th- his statement of that philosophy, but how it's done is obviously going to be very interesting. Anyway, so we've come to this time today where we're now pondering what to do about this. And uh, unfortunately, not as many people are pondering how to do it and still retain the values that we have. And uh, that's a that's a big question. I've been trying to even invent an entirely new moral theory in order to uh, come up with solutions to this. One of the problems is bad, bad news travels faster. And when you have a retweet button that makes it as simple as a click, um, bad news gets amplified really fast. Yeah, bad it's, and it, fake news, apparently. It's yeah. not just that, though. Uh, I mean, to be fair, uh, there's been some you know strong research showing that the way that the algorithms on YouTube and mm-hmm. Facebook and many other things, not just retweeting, Uh, have been amplifying the wrong things and not giving people what they want. And of course, addicting people in ways that they don't want to be addicted, which at first I thought was all because all the media are sponsored by advertising. Basically, the only way we really came up with to make money on the internet, 95% of the money came from advertising. And of course, that means you're working for the advertisers, you're not working for the users. But then I, I met one of the executives of Netflix, and I learned about they're thinking inside Netflix and they don't take any advertising, at least not yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are just as much about addicting you as they can, as they can be regardless of where their money comes from. So sadly uh, it's not advertising, which pushed us in this way, at least not entirely. I, I think advertising played a role, um, which is making it particularly hard to figure out the right ph- philosophical principles uh, to guide our online life and, you know, stop the bad things from happening and still preserve all the great stuff that I still believe in. Mm-hmm. So when we, we, we talk about that sort of ethical position, you know, you work with the electronic frontier foundation and so forth, as we move into the metaverse, as we move into artificial intelligence, it's going to be making decisions for us. 
back in those early days, did you guys foresee these issues? You, you know, you've said you, you're trying to work on sort of a new moral code for, for online activity. We know Tim Berners-Lee is, is doing something similar. But, um, you know, were some of these issues telescoped back in those early days as you were sort of trying to put policy and, and process together? Well, so we had um, spam, of course, uh, originate. In fact, I traced the history of spam and wrote some articles about it and found the first spam that we could think of was done in 1978 on on uh, ARPANET email. So it goes back a long way. But it actually pretty much vanished from then until about 10 years later when it became a bigger thing again. So these things were telescoped. We knew that there would be people who would abuse things. In a way, originally, it was like a small town where nobody locks their doors or mm-hmm. leaves the keys in the car because, you know, you can trust your neighbors. And it obviously, as it grew, it had to move away from being that small town. And there's always some regret when that happens. Um, so some of these things were telescoped. The, uh, the idea, though, that... Uh, we would see, uh, you know, deliberate propagandization. Well, we actually, of course, propaganda is not a new invention, and it goes back and it's had many masters in the past who have done horrible things, obviously. But um, we, are, again, this was a bit naive. We thought we maybe had an answer for that, right? That oh, you couldn't block the information. Right now in Russia, you can still watch YouTube. All of YouTube can. They they blocked Facebook and a few other things, but you can still get a lot of um, of outside media in Russia. But they're managing to still have the majority of the population. Uh, listen to only what the Kremlin says and believing that, oh, we're in the middle of this glorious war and we're just doing a small little military operation there. And and obviously there are real horrible consequences to that happening. We hoped that we had a solution. It's funny, in the end of the Soviet Union, in, the, uh, in around 1990, um, many people pointed to the fax machine as one of the technologies which helped end the Soviet Union because finally there was this means of communication within the Soviet Union that could not be blocked. As long as you could make a phone call, you could send newsletters and publications. So people started faxing the truth around uh, that the Kremlin didn't want people to hear. And that was able to spread. But everyone knew back then, don't trust the Kremlin. Like that was not a, a secret that the Kremlin lied to you. For some reason, in this world where we now have all these technologies, we managed to get a place where people believe the Kremlin. And uh, want that baffles us all. They want to believe. It's it's quite interesting. Right now, you have uh, it's sort of choose your own reality, and when you don't know which direction to lean, or if you're unable to make a decision on your own, you're going to be heavily influenced by the people, the group that you want to belong to. So it's like the social construction of reality is is what we're seeing happen, and unfortunately, the realities that are being constructed they don't really mesh so well together. So we have a lot of conflict in the world that stems from this misunderstanding, misapprehension. Well, of the world. I underestimated how tribal people are. I mean, it's not, again, a new discovery that tribalism is an important driver of our, of our mental, of our mindsets, but um, it's astonishingly strong. And we're actually reinforcing the tribalism and tribalism goes together with everyone's favorite friend, confirmation bias. Uh, And so once you have your tribe picked, um, then it's turned out to be much easier than expected to get people to only listen to the information which confirms what they already know or want to believe. I, I've actually uh, grouped the world into two big tribes. There obviously are many tribes, and I've given them names. Uh, I call one tribe the Keens and the other tribe the Stewards. Now, the Keens are probably the people listening to this show. Uh, these are people who are keen on the future. They think it's going to be better. They like the idea of progress. Um, they 
like the idea of technology, they tend to be secular. They tend to be um, a little more on the left of the political spectrum, although not universally. Uh, and then the stewards, uh, as you can guess, are people who value the past. Um, they want to protect the past. They're stewards of it. Um, you know, make America great again is a as uh, a steward slogan, as you would expect. Of course, ISIS is also a steward organization that's trying to you know return to um, a, a, a sort of a traditional caliphate. Um, so the Keens and the stewards are in battle, and the dark secret is the Keens are going to win, uh, and they have been winning. And um, the stewards know this sort of, but that doesn't mean they accept it. It doesn't mean they um, don't want to go gently into that good night. Uh, they want to fight it. If you used to be on top of the world and, you know, the old order when I was young was white Christian males were in charge. And that's just, that's just how it goes. Uh, and even if you have come to believe that that was not morally right, uh, that, uh, you know, it's not, there's nothing inherently that says that white Christian males are superior. There are some people who think that, but there are many people who have come to accept that that's no longer what they would want to believe. But even if you believe it, it doesn't mean you don't resist losing that, uh, that privilege that you got. Um, and um, so because of that, we see the battle going on. We see people forming into their tribes and doing things just because it defeats the other tribe. So this is my explanation, one of Thousands of explanations, of course. It's not just one factor for things like the election of Trump and Johnson and Putin's power in Russia and so on. Is this battle between the Keynes and the Stewards? And the main conclusion I come out of it is that the Keynes, who are going to win because they're richer and have better technology, because they love technology, uh, they must win more gracefully, but they don't want to. <laughs> um, they must tolerate, you know pulling the others gently into the future that uh, is the yeah. one we are going to build. And, uh, you know, this is this idea is also expressed um, slightly differently by Virginia Postrel in her book, The Future and Its Enemies, where he she identifies uh, dynamists and uh, statists for stasis and uh, not, yeah. not status, but stasisists. I'm not actually I was sure thinking you. of that when you when you're talking about the Keynes. Yeah. So Virginia also has identified this uh, before I did, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, I think her thesis is also uh, got a lot of validity. Uh, and so uh, this is this could you could call this the great futurist question. This is this is the battle for the future um, between these different attitudes. Now, obviously, there are sub battles of all sorts, but the weapons are getting stronger. And of course, we Keens are providing some of those weapons. And uh, yeah. what I'm afraid of is, is where we're going, which is where the AI technologies that are being revolutionized right now uh, are used to do things like, you know, build a model of every single individual voter, know as much as you can about that voter, everything they've written on social media, their political opinions. And then write for them. I mean, you've already people have been impressed with what GPT-3 can sort of pull out of a hat. But we're not too far. Some of it's garbage, though. But we're not too far from being able to build an AI that says, here's everything about a person. Now write things that will push their buttons exactly right. Okay. And, 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 and send only them 
that thing, yeah. uh, as opposed to old politics, which has had to say, let's identify some common themes that we can rally our base around. And we have this concept of our base, right? There are these this group of people who are, are uh, want to support us, will believe what we tell them. Now you start expanding the base. Now it's an arms race, though, so we have two different sides playing this game, and the result is chaotic. And so I don't. Uh, I don't even know how to predict what's going to happen when this goes on. And so that's why we need to find a solution for it. You know, we were uh, talking a little bit about business models a moment ago and how advertising shaped the web. Uh, in February, the Financial Times did an analysis of a number of patents that uh, Facebook had recently filed. And in those patents, they discovered that what Facebook was trying to patent, you know, there's no guarantee they're going to implement this. It's just the patent. It's just an idea. Um, but what they're clearly trying to consider for the metaverse, for their, their immersive 3D world, is to do exactly what you just described, to build uh, high fidelity replicas of the people who are using the metaverse. They're gonna track your eye motions, your involuntary reactions, your skin temperature, uh, your, your, how your skin responds and so forth. And it's quite obvious they're trying to build like basically a high fidelity 3D replica of their users so that they can test subliminal advertising on them and then saturate us with that inside of the metaverse. Um, the, the, the article in the Times was quite chilling, the conclusion it came to, because uh, I don't think that's what people think the metaverse is about. <laughs> well, no, they definitely don't think it's about that. Well, that's interesting. That's an interesting segue into my explorations of a new moral theory uh, as a possible solution to this. And the new moral theory basically says that it is wrong to exploit bugs in the human brain. Um, and uh, we already have a law that makes it wrong to exploit bugs in computer systems. And we already have laws that make it wrong to exploit certain bugs in the human brain, the most obvious of which is gambling addiction. So there are a variety. Of, we, we psychologists have clearly identified and scientifically studied the phenomena of gambling addiction and other addictive behaviors. Uh, and so we actually have laws that say it is illegal to exploit this and to try and you know get someone to gamble away all the money they have. Well, what if we expand that theory? But now we have to be careful because taken too far, this could go um, into being too strong um, if it's a legal regime. But you could start imagining saying that, you know, th this idea that you are deliberately trying to uh, exploit things that people are unconscious of to make them do things, then my test in particular is you make them do something which if you explain to them what you were doing, they would say, I don't want that. All right. So they have to be unaware you're doing it. Like, I don't want to stop things that people voluntarily want to do, you know, and if, if people who aren't don't have a gambling addiction problem want to gamble, want to take drugs, I mean, I'm cool with that, as long as they're fully aware of what they're doing. Uh, I don't think it's my business to tell them to stop, but it might be my business to tell them to stop if the people are unaware of it, uh, and it's deliberate, and it's a known, scientifically studied flaw in the human psyche, and it's being used. Uh, and Act, so... Uh, the, a brain because, actor. Yeah, I am a... Um, I'm a pretty much a free speech absolutist. And so I am not on the side of those who say, you know, we should just ban this type of speech or, um, you know, force online services to delete this or, you know, remove people from Twitter and so on. Um, so I'm saying instead, if, if you're trying to hack someone's brain, that's, a, that's not a speech, that's an action. Mm -hmm. And uh, for people who are fans of free speech as I am, um, we tend to say we don't restrict speech. And what we do is we restrict actions. Uh, and it's okay if, if we're restricting an action. Um, 
The other thing that people don't understand in the free speech debate is that it is not a belief that all speech is pure and good. There is lots of harmful speech. There are many books that have caused great harm in the world that we don't ban and I wouldn't ban. Um, the reality is that, uh, well, you, you either they've either caused an action. But the other thing is that we have found throughout history that there is no way to give someone the power to pick good and bad speech that doesn't backfire. Right. And so... Even though there is bad speech in the world, if you say, okay, fine, we will then appoint Mark Zuckerberg or, uh, you know, or, or a government agency to be the arbiter of what speech is good and bad, it always goes sour. Yeah, and yeah. so it's not a power we hand over. And because that power is not in our quiver, we look for other things such as action regulation. Let me bring it to this point, though, it is obviously with the pandemic most recently, we've had um, a lot of division around that, mask wearing, vaccines and so forth. Um, we have the issue of inequality right now that, that's a significant issue, really accentuated by um, uh, by the you know, inflation rates and so forth. But for things like artificial intelligence and climate change response in particular, we are going to need to build consensus. So just before we go to break, what are your thoughts on consensus building using the technology we have? I mean, this is the problem that I was talking about with the tribalism. The tribalism is making our consensus building be worse. I mean, the only reason people got up in arms about masks is totally tribal. My tribe doesn't like masks. No, look, exactly. I don't like wearing the mask either. I mean, I, I get pretty uncomfortable in them. But, uh, and, you know, I have a personal connection to this. But I if lost, it saves someone's life, right? Well, not just someone's life. I lost a close member of my family to this disease. Um, it's not abstract for me. It's not abstract for the relatives of a million Americans and five million people around the world. It's very not abstract for us. Uh, and so... Yeah, it's a little uncomfortable, but, you know, we put on pants just to stop people from uh, seeing our, you know, well, you don't want to see mine. But, uh, you know, the, the point is, uh, You're we're, right on we're, we've been pretty easily come to consensus to do things like, you know, some pretty minor inconveniences in order to uh, make society work better. But in this case, to save lives. Uh, but it became uh, a whole thing. And, you know, the great thing was that whichever you believed, you could find a study that backed up what you believed. You could find a study that said masks didn't seem to be effective. You could find other studies that showed the masks were effective. You believed the one that matched what your tribe wanted you to believe or, or yourself. It's not everyone is totally tribal, but so many people are. So the same thing has happened on global warming. And you can tell this because there's a really strong correlation between one's political stripe and one's views on vaccines, masking, global warming are, are probably three of the big issues. And abortion is actually, of course, the new hot one, which is flowing through our veins. Uh, the story behind abortion, by the way, is fascinating. I don't think we have time for it, but it, it was oh, very much a deliberate campaign. Back in the, in the 1970s, yeah. the evangelical community did not care about abortion. They yeah, were exactly. not even anti-abortion. That was manufactured. And it became, here. you're in our tribe. Are you with Jesus or are you with the baby murderers? And you you had to pick uh, if you wanted to stay in the church. And they found this way to create this divisive issue. 
the way I sort of phrase it is that we are all passionate people, or at least most of us are passionate people. But when you're a passionate person, it means you're a gun that someone else can aim and fire. Your beliefs are your own in many cases. You believe what you believe for personal reasons in many cases, but you can now be pointed and fired at some for someone else's purposes. And this is what Vladimir Putin does. Uh, there are documented examples how uh, there would be two protests organized across the street from each other, a left-wing protest or a right-wing protest and a left-wing counter-protest. In fact, this idea of a counter-protest is a yeah. relatively modern invention. And Facebook discovered that both of them, both of the protests had been created by Russia's internet research agency, Putin's little propaganda arm, uh, not so little. Uh, and uh, in another case, when this was discovered and they talked to the, to the people who were going to go to the protest and said, we've discovered that it was Putin who actually instigated your protest. They said, that doesn't matter. We still believe in this. We still want to do it. Yeah, we're not yeah. going to not fight the alt-right just because Putin made us fight the alt-right. Well, that's rational in one sense, but it's deeply wrong in another sense. And uh, it's very hard to come up with solutions for that. So I wish I had a happy answer for you on how we'll build consensus. Right now, I'm mostly looking for how can we at least get out of being driven into negative consensus right, right. Um, uh, before we can actually get to that consensus. All right, well, listen, Brad, this is super interesting stuff. What we'd really like to do, though, is we'd like to dive into how to be a better futurist. And uh, um, we'd love to hear about your experience with robocars and, uh, you know, where you see uh, autonomous vehicles taking uh, human society after the break. So stay with us, everyone. You're listening to uh, The Futurists. Uh, we have Brad Templeton as our guest. We'll be right back after this break. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet. But we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Welcome to the Futurists, where your hosts, Brett King and Robert Tursek, interview the world's foremost super forecasters, thought leaders, technologists, entrepreneurs, and futurists building the world of tomorrow. Our guests include Kevin J. Anderson, a New York Times bestselling author that worked on the Oscar-winning Dune movie, Andrew Hessel, synthetic biologist and author of The Genesis Machine, and Dr. Harry Clore of Beyond Imagination, the company behind robot avatars like Bamney, 
one of the most sophisticated general-purpose humanoid robots on the planet. Together, we will explore how our world will be radically changed over the coming years. AI bioscience and gene therapy, renewable energy and battery technology, food and agriculture advances, computing, the metaverse, the space industry, crypto, resource management, supply chain automation, and climate change will all reshape our world over the next 100 years. Join us on The Futurist to explore what's coming next, and we will see you in the future. Hey there, you're listening to The Futurists, and this week we're in partnership with our friends at Breaking Banks. I'm Rob Tursik, and my co-host is Brett King, and this week we're interviewing Brad Templeton. Now, Brad, at the beginning of the show, you talked a little bit about your timeline, um, and you were a little um, cautious about futurists making predictions that are that are time based. Uh, but you had said that you you had a um, accurate timeline for robot vehicles, and you know, if you don't mind, tell me a little bit about first of all, where are we on that timeline, and when am I going to have my robot car? But secondly, how did you arrive at that? We're really interested in methodology, like how do you do your forecasting? Well, there, I wish I could tell you I have like a, you know, a methodology or a formula for how you do it. As I said, naming dates is usually a mistake. Uh, my colleague, Ray Kurzweil, uh, he uh, likes to say that we're actually usually over-optimistic about the near term and uh, pessimistic, and, and we underestimate the far term. He's, he might have some merit to that thing. Again, it's not a universal thing. And, and Ray foolishly does name dates. He's for, for years been you know identifying uh, when AI will match human beings and when some sort of singularity will happen. So I'm not sure I would do that. In fact, when people ask me, when can he, I get He's my... been reasonably accurate on a number of things, though. He would argue. I mean, no, Ray, Ray, is, Ray is definitely above average, uh, well above average even. I would not say that uh, he, he has that same phenomenon I had about, uh, you know, you always remember or, or modify your memory of your predictions to make your predictions more accurate. He Ray will claim he's like 97% accurate and, and he isn't, but uh, he's still quite good. So um, I'm not trying to condemn him in any way there. Um, but when people ask me, when will I get my self-driving car? My answer I usually give them is uh, June 23rd of 2024 at 4 p.m. Pacific time. Just to tell them there isn't but uh, a, a real prediction. Actually, the the more serious answer I give, of course, is that it isn't in, in the same time in every different place. Yeah. Uh, never more have we seen the future arriving but not being evenly distributed than this, in the sense that if you live in the suburbs of Phoenix, Arizona, you've been able to ride in Waymo's cars since uh, 2019 uh, with nobody in them uh, uh, in more recent times. Um, That's now possible in San Francisco from both Waymo and Cruise, a unit of General Motors. It's possible in Shenzhen. It's possible in uh, Beijing. It's possible in Shanghai, possible in Guangzhou. Um, and it will be possible. Uh, and uh, what's Brett? Oh, Brett has a yes. I have a Tesla too. Oh, you've tried. You're trying to buy one. Yeah. Good luck. I am. Uh, no, no. I've got it. It's coming on July 13, reportedly, with my with FSD. So, uh, well, so uh, we could do a, an hour long program about Tesla's supposed FSD, which is not F or S or D, um, <laughs> but it is. Uh, it, it's a prototype. It's interesting. I have it on my car, and I've uh, I have reviewed it uh, somewhat negatively. I'm afraid. Um, but that is, again, the source of, uh, you know, easily a few hours of discussion about how that thing works. But the real self-driving cars, the ones that uh, are operating, there's nobody in the vehicle. It pulls up, picks you up, takes you somewhere else. 
Those are here if you are in these particular places. Now, this is an effort to build what's called a robo-taxi. It's basically an Uber with no driver in it. Uh, it's much easier to explain it to people, by the way, now that you can you know, just point to Uber. In the past, it was a little hard to imagine this cloud of cars that served you. What Tesla wants to build is um, a privately sold personal car, which has some self-driving ability, which is a different thing and, and useful, but actually harder. Because when you're building a taxi service, your job is just you know, make a commercially viable taxi service area, which San Francisco is. That's where Uber began just with San Francisco. New York is, a variety of other places are. Uh, as opposed to trying to build a car that can drive everywhere, which is what is demanded by car buying customers. If you bought a, a, a car, and it had this great feature you spent a lot of money from, but it only worked in you know East Los Angeles. Well, it's no, you're not going to buy that, or you could only sell them in East Los Angeles, which is not of interest to any car company. So uh, Tesla's also taking a, a much harder path to doing it and trying to do it cheaply, which is again a very odd philosophy. So uh, when they'll succeed is is much harder to predict. But the others have already succeeded, sort of, because even though t uh, Waymo has now driven. Uh, probably about 12 million miles around Phoenix, maybe maybe eight to 10. They haven't uh, breaking, broken down the numbers recently uh, without ever being at fault in an accident. That's uh, the equivalent of about uh, 10 to 12 human lifetimes of driving without being at fault in an accident, uh, which is better than humans can drive. So one could say they have achieved the safety goal we've all talked about since the beginning is how do we make this safe enough? How do we show that it's safe enough? I think they've achieved that. Uh, they still aren't deploying widely, though. Uh, one reason is that they did that in an area that's easier to drive. Phoenix is yeah. one of the easiest places in the world to drive. Uh, but the other reason is I'm not sure they've fully conquered being a good road citizen, uh, which is to say that people honk at them sometimes because they're like grandmothers rather than, uh, than ordinary drivers. And so you have to be both safe and a good citizen of the road, something that there's actually a trade-off between, which makes it a little more challenging. But just in the last few weeks, we saw them expand their service areas in San Francisco. We saw a whole bunch of new areas appear in China. Several other companies are doing taxi services, robo-taxi services, with a human being still behind the wheel to take over in case of a problem mm -hmm. uh, in a number of cities around the world. So that obviously is more experimental. But the ones that are running with nobody in them, while still not profitable because they're expensive research projects are much closer to you know achieving this goal and the question of when you'll get it. So my answer for when you'll get it is that I predict for this decade, a land rush as companies do solve these safety and road citizenship problems, and then they go out to stake territory. And unfortunately, staking territory is actually pretty expensive. Um, it needs a lot of capital. Now, the companies doing this, like General Motors and Google and Apple and others and Amazon that want to get in the game, well, they do have a lot of capital. So that's not going to be a problem. And even the startups are getting access to some of the biggest pools of capital that startups have ever received. So it will be done, mm -hmm. uh, even though it will be so capital intensive. But that means is you can't just deploy the whole United States at once. Even Google doesn't have enough money to deploy the whole world or the whole U.S. at once. Yeah, tell me what's difficult here, because my understanding is that they've got 80% solved and there's 20% remaining that is challenging. Maybe it's 10% remaining. I don't know. Um, talk a little bit about the underlying technology and the hard problems of autonomous vehicles. 
Well, I wouldn't use numbers like 80 or 20 percent. Um, in fact, this is one of the mistakes that people make with uh, the, the vehicle that Brett's going to receive in a few months is they see now you it, tell me. Yeah, they see it drive um, uh, and, and work 99 percent of the time, maybe even 99.9 percent of the time. And so um, if you want a vehicle that only runs over one of a thousand pedestrians that it comes across, that that's great. Um but the real goal is 99.9999, maybe even another nine on top of that, six or seven nines. Uh, and unfortunately, the journey from of uh, three nines to, uh, to, to six nines is, well, it's a thousandfold. So they're 0.1% of the way there is how you might express it. Uh, but on the other hand, Waymo and the others are not 0.1% of the way there. They're, they're much closer. Uh, in fact, I think in the safety number, Waymo has achieved that role. But what's hard? Well, so... Actually, surprisingly, one of the hard things is proving that you have done what you think you've done. It's a bit like drugs, right? So we had the Moderna vaccine in February of 2020, uh, but we didn't know it was safe. Uh, but it was built like a month before there was ever a lockdown. The Moderna vaccine was ready. You could have gotten it injected in your arm. And some people did who were doing the trials. And it wasn't until November that we finally said, OK, now we know it's safe enough. We'll put it in arms. Um, if we had somehow magically known how to use it, uh, and I don't know how we could have magically known this, but if we had magically known it, uh, millions of people uh, would have avoided dying. So this is no minor thing to, to worry about. This is very concrete sort of and, and tragic numbers behind this. But anyway, with self-driving cars, you have to prove that you've actually made it safe enough, just like the drug. So you first, you have to make it safe uh, because you can't prove it by you know driving for, um, well, human beings have a fatal accident about every 80 million miles in the United States. So you can't just say, let's just drive for 80 million miles and see if we kill someone, uh, or even drive for 10 billion miles and see if we kill the average number of people, because that's very time consuming. You're always changing your software release uh, every few days. So you can't even drive that much, uh, except in simulator on a release. So proving it is problem number one. The other problem that I think needs a little more work still today is predicting the future, being a good futurist. And, and in fact, I often say that the task of a self-driving car, it's often expressed in terms of sensing and planning and uh, all sorts of other technical robotics terms. But the real job is to predict the future and just not have any ones in which things get hit. Uh, so what you have to do is your sensors tell you where things are, hopefully. I mean, that again is what people work on is to get the sensors to be very good at letting me know where pedestrians and cars and so on are. But really what I want to know is where are they going to be? Mm -hmm. um, and human beings today are still better at predicting what other human beings are going to do in the future than robots are. Uh, and so that's one thing that we should improve in our robots. And uh, people are working very hard on exactly this. You know, get to know where things are going to be. Um, we could still improve our sensing, though. I think getting faster response time in certain highway situations, high-speed situations, um, is good. It still, human beings take about three quarters of a second to react to things they see on the road. The robots are faster than that, but I'd like to make them even faster. Do you so think the that, compute power will reside in the vehicle itself, or will the compute power be like you know in the cloud or edge? Yeah, edge, yeah. edge computing. Yeah. Absolutely in the vehicle itself. Um, That's and there because are, of the round trip, the time, the, the lag time? No, or it's more it's more a question of, of um, reliability. You want to test, you want to build everything. If you're going to bet your company on the safety of a system you're deploying, you don't want to bet it along with betting on the reliability of Verizon. Uh, 
mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, or or any other player who's not you. Um, you you mostly want to bet it on and control and test and certify and verify every component of it. Um, you don't want any kind of radio outage to suddenly mean you could have a safety incident. So there'll I, be a processor on the car. You think there'll be sufficient processing power in the cars? Oh yeah, yeah. No, there's there's um, uh-huh. there's more than enough processing on the power in the car. And how about uh, and the only thing? Sorry, we'll say again. Uh, what about car to car communication? Like what what it makes? Yeah. Sense what about for like three D point mapping and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. Terrible or horrible mistake um so that won't there are in fact i'm just doing having writing an article about uh, um the, the 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 dumbness of smart roads uh to to put it in an ironic way um so there are a whole bunch of reasons and again this is something that i've uh, talked for an hour about uh but you again you you don't want to depend on others for your information for you don't you can't you can't depend on it if you were expecting other cars to communicate with you uh, some of them won't um not all of them will have that equipment some of them the equipment will be broken so what that means is you have to work extremely well without communicating with anyone it's not especially the first car on the road can't talk to anybody so the first car on the road has to meet this goal of safe enough and that's a very very high goal safer than human beings drive you have to meet that goal without any communication so the most the communication could do is take you from safe enough to safer enough um, just a little tiny increment and so it's not really that valuable but it creates a computer intrusion risk. When you want to do good computer security, the first thing you do with your computers is teach them the same thing you teach small children. Don't talk to strangers. Uh, And uh, because that's where computer intrusion comes. When you have a web server that will talk to anybody, uh, when you have something that will accept a communication or open a communication with random parties, that's where most computer security violations take place. So the right thing is your car talks only to its headquarters. It can't avoid talking to its headquarters. But frankly, it should be very afraid of even its own headquarters if it can be. Uh, And uh, there's really no need to go beyond that. People have dreamed up. Uh, things they might do if they could talk to a traffic light or talk to another car, but almost none of them actually need that. And so there's no reason to create a computer security vulnerability that gains you almost nothing. And also so you is, don't you don't buy into the concept of like convoy, you know, vehicle to vehicle transmission so that you can have that, you know, sort of cloud computing power of the combined vehicles, particularly in a highway setting. Well, so for specific convoys that want to follow, you know, just a, f- a few feet from each other, um, there can be value in that. Although, and there is a company that attempted to do that. Unfortunately, they did go out of business. There's a new company that's just started up doing that, and they may do better. Um, but no, no, generally not. In fact, one of the problems with convoys, the there was a big experiment in Sweden run by Volvo and a European consortium about convoys. And they found two problems with doing it. One was if you were the rear core car in a convoy, um, your uh, the front of your car got destroyed by the little pieces of stone on the road, which are thrown up if you follow too closely behind someone else. Because, you know, roads have got little tiny chips of rock and stuff on them all over. They're thrown up, especially by the trucks, and they fly, you know, 10 feet or something like that. If you're following by the correct distance, it's not a problem. If you try and follow closely, it lay, they had one car, its radiator started leaking just because it, hundreds and hundreds of stones had been Im- embedded in it. So following too closely is not a good thing. Secondly, even if convoying is useful for saving fuel, it's not something you do on day one 
you sort of do that after everything else has been perfected, and then you try getting a little closer and a little more dangerous. So it's uh, even if it is a good idea, it's some distance away. But that's about it. Yes, a radio might be useful for that. Although I think a laser would probably be better in that circumstance yeah. than a radio. Um, but that's a, that's a different matter. There are advantages to both. But no, no, absolutely. You've got now, for example, two million of the accidents in the United States out of the twelve million total every year car accidents are with deer. And uh, I have not oh, figured dear. out how. Yeah, I had not figured out how to get the deer to wear transponders. Um, so uh, unless you can, uh, you're going to face the fact that you just have to make this work without communicating with anyone else, as human beings do. But you communicate with your headquarters. You get everything that Waze gives you. You know, you know if there's something going on ahead right, of you on right. the road because. A car up there told its headquarters that there's a problem here, there's ice, there's an accident, whatever it is, stalled car. Um, that already happens with ways with, with just human beings. They talk to the cloud, and then your headquarters talks to the cloud and learns that and informs you of things you want to know. Um, you actually can do that now with a latency of uh, less than 100 milliseconds. So you can actually do real-time stuff that way. And oddly enough, this is, this is very weird. So normally I'm a big fan of decentralization and distribution. And you would say, oh, then you should love direct radio communication between the cars. But it turns out that if you want to directly communicate between the cars, you have to standardize how you do it. You have right. to come up with a way. No one's ever built a, a radio communications technology, any kind of communications technology, actually, that did not provide high value to the very first customer. Right? If, because if you have to have a, to make radio communications between cars work, you've got to have hundreds of millions of cars doing it before it's valuable. If only 10% of the cars have it, and by the way, that would take many years to happen. If only 10% of the cars have it, then only 1% of the interactions between cars can make use of it. So the benefit is quite small. And it only happens if both sides are speaking the same protocol and have the same radio hardware and can talk to each other and have a line of sight between each other yeah. because this is all done at high frequencies. Yeah. When you're talking to your headquarters, you don't need a line of sight between the vehicles. You don't need the vehicles to be compatible with anything but their headquarters. It's only the headquarters who now have to uh, be compatible with each other, which is a much easier problem to solve. And then they solve. can act as the gatekeeper though, right? Yeah. So yeah, this no, no. The, the the, the, why, this is one of the reasons why analysts say that Tesla has a huge advantage because all of their cars are communicating with the headquarters. And as a result, Tesla has a proprietary information advantage about road conditions and how their cars are performing and where they're performing and so forth that other car manufacturers don't have and might not catch up to in the near term. Well, yes and no. Um, there's there's an Israeli company, Mobileye, which is now belongs to Intel, right. although it will shortly go public again, be spun out. Um, they are in 50 million cars. Now, they don't get the same level of data access to the older cars that they're in, but they've now been working deals with the car companies who buy their chips and put them in their cars to increase that amount of data access. So they actually have a much larger fleet that they can gather data from than Tesla can, although they can't get as much control and data as Tesla can do. And Waymo has a much smaller fleet than Tesla has, but Waymo gets uh, orders of magnitude more data from each vehicle. So uh, there's actually no uh, one winning strategy among yeah. those three. Mm -hmm. Hey, so Brad, um, let's change tack a little bit here before we we close out the show. Um, you know, I want to go full futurist here, right? Mm. Um, so 
what I told is you, it? 2024, it, uh, June 23rd. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, is, what is the stuff about the future that really gets you excited? What do you think is going to be the most meaningful changes we're going to see over the next 30 to 50 years that really is going to positively change the world for us, uh, you know, those of us who are the Keynes? Well, so um, because, as you can see, I bleach my hair with peroxide every day so I can look more distinguished, I will admit an age bias in this particular answer, which is I want to stop aging. Um, oh, yeah. And that, unfortunately, now trumps almost all, I can't use that word anymore, can you? But um, almost all other uh, goals I may have for the future is that I have a future um, and, or, and that it's, it's, a, it's a youthful one rather than a decrepit one. Um, and uh, for that, actually, uh, while there's lots of interesting research going on and we track it, and I'm sure you've talked about it in other episodes of this show or will, um, but medicine is horribly archaic in its times. And we talked yeah. a bit about how long it took to figure out the Moderna vaccine uh, could be given to people. Um, we were able to solve the pandemic in a week, but our uh, styles of doing medicine do not permit that to happen. There are other more direct stories. There's a drug called fluvoxamine, which is an, uh, an OCD drug. It's been uh, on the market for 40 years. It's as safe as any of those drugs are, I wouldn't say perfectly safe, but very well understood how safe it is. And in June of 2020, uh, or maybe it was May, some researchers discovered that it seemed to uh, seriously reduce COVID deaths. And over time, much more research was done and found that, yes, uh, it would cut COVID deaths in half if you administered this drug. And because it's uh, well-known and safe and already approved, it could be prescribed off-label by any doctor. But none had the guts to do it. I talked to many doctors during this period about it. There were some doctors who would do it. I wanted it for my mother when she was dying of COVID. Um, but you could not get it because it wasn't well-established about this. Now, later, in later 2021, more research came out, confirmed these numbers, and now it is on the recommendation list for treatment. Uh, it turns out we have a new antiviral drug, semi-new antiviral drug called Paxlovid, which is even better at preventing COVID deaths. And so fluvoxamine won't. Except be... you've got to get it in the first five days. And yeah. many people don't know they've got symptoms, right? Well, also, it's, by the way, it, uh, it, it interacts with half the drugs in the world. Uh, so you also have right. to be very careful about how you take it. Um, but, it, well, my point is, though, that this drug exists, and uh, it also took time to get it approved and so on. Um, and so it's no longer this abstract thing to discuss in journals about how many million people died because we weren't ready to use that drug or to as easily use these drugs. I mean, we're talking death tolls that exceed any of the wars, um, you know, in right. the, uh, well, sorry, not a death toll that exceeds the, the total death toll of the Second World War, which is about 60 million people. But uh, the death toll of the United States, certainly in that war, is far exceeded in any, in all the wars, in fact, in the history of the United States. So, um, we really have to rethink how we do it. Now, one thing I have proposed is that the United States should create a board certification in experimental medicine, which any doctor could uh, study and get board certified in. And they would then be allowed to um, do 
to prescribe experimental medications. In a modern world where every patient you prescribe an experimental medication to has a smartphone, not a, not a big leap anymore, um, has with the smartphone uh, m- these medical sensors you can get now that you can hook up to your phone with Bluetooth, it can do your EEG, they can read all your vitals, they can be uh, tracking all things, even in some cases doing blood tests, which we're going to get better at. So we start getting this idea of making it much easier to both work with experimental medicines and also to immediately detect when they're going wrong. Uh, And if we can do that, we can much more safely uh, test and deploy and figure out what medical therapies work and also possibly ways that treat aging. Because if even if there's a thing that's been discovered, which will give you eternal life today, it might not be ready by the time I'm old. Um, And uh, and, and I'm I'm not that old yet. Um, So this is actually we're on the clock. We're all of us are on the clock. We're all on the clock. Um, in fact, uh, what, I, what I've actually studied uh, or I've read some research on, um, this, there's a very simple piece of math you can do that our current regulatory regime, the FDA, it can take uh, six to 10 years to get a drug approved. Um, and so they were able to simply calculate, let's take all the drugs that didn't get approved because they were bad. They did something wrong. They hurt some patients in the trials, the safety trials. So if you took those drugs and you imagine they were used 10 times as much or or you were 50 times as much in experimental medicine trials managed by these board-certified doctors, and you can calculate just how many people would have been harmed because of that. But remember, everyone's got the smartphone. So as soon as something goes wrong, they're reporting it. Any pattern in things they're reporting are being detected by AI within days. We're saying, oh, look, this drug is causing some people to have heart murmurs. Let's immediately look into that. Let's find out what's going on. So you can work that out. The other number you can calculate is what if all the drugs that did get approved and ended up saving lives and curing disease 10 years later, what if they'd been out and ready you know, six or seven years before that? And how many people would have been saved? And it's not even in the same ballpark. Uh, The number of people harmed by that regime is like orders of magnitude smaller than the number of people saved by that regime. It's all a data problem in the end, you know? It's all about getting getting the right data and being able to make these contextualized decisions, right? Data will maybe guess around the real problem. The real problem is our now archaic principles of medical ethics right which do it, it, not so hurt the patient like wait to, wait till you hear a symptom before you start a treatment rather than tracking the likelihood of a particular condition genomics uh, gut yeah. biome blood work you know internal sensors all of those things so hey brad brad uh, you know i know um you know we could continue this this conversation but we've we've run out of time unfortunately yeah, so, no worries. Um, so, episode two of the Brad uh, Templeton. A, a very ironic, a very ironic statement to make when we're talking about aging that we've absolutely run out of, <laughs> we have run out of time. <laughs> we've run out of time. Um, but thank you uh, for your uh, enormous generosity in giving us your time. Where can people find more about the uh, the stuff that you're writing and and the stuff that you talk about? Well, I have a blog ideas for Brad and a website templetons.com. I also write about transportation uh, on the Forbes.com website. So you can find all those things if if you could somehow get a giant network of connected computers where you could look up things. Um, awesome. You'll probably be able to learn where those the things are. Yeah. Or there'll be links in the podcast description probably. There will well. be. There will be. Thank you very much, Brad. Great to see you again. And, uh, you know, hope you hope you get to uh, to wait out the cure of longevity like, uh, like all of us. But uh, thanks for joining us. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. 
or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks. <laughs>